You've read the statistics, but they do bear repeating. The American criminal justice system holds roughly 2.3 million people in bondage every day. In 1,719 state prisons, 102 federal prisons, 1,852 juvenile correction facilities, 3,163 local jails, 80 Indian reservation jails, in military prisons, immigration detention facilities, civil commitment centers, state psychiatric hospitals, and prisons in U.S. territories. Can you say Guantanamo? 2.3 million people. In addition, there are roughly half a million people at any given time in local pretrial detention, 9,000 youth, 1,100 in Indian territories, 51,000 in federal holding facilities, and some are pe people are there simply because they can't pay their bail. There are another 3.7 million people on probation in this country. Some 95% of felony convictions in the United States are the result of plea bargains with no evidence ever presented and almost none of these are ever appealed. 95% of felony convictions. Upwards of 20 million Americans have a felony record. 20 million. And then there's the racism. About 25% of the total U.S. adult African American population has a felony record, compared with 6.5% of adult non-African Americans. Just before the jury started out, I saw a little judge commence to look about, says an old song. In five minutes, he walked in holding a verdict in his right hand. Or another of my favorite songs, you can't hang a man for killing a woman who's trying to steal his horse. Those are the lyrics of a 1953 rockabilly song, later made famous by Willie Nelson. You can't hang a man for killing a woman who's trying to steal his horse. Uh, that kind of underlines the sort of justice system the American poor experience, contradictory, a little nonsensical. What the music critic Greil Marcus calls the weird old America. In my extended family, incarceration of some sort or other was very common. I grew up believing that the justice system was a system rigged to punish the poor, swiftly but arbitrarily. My wife can tell you that even today I say unnice things when I see police cars. You, you can't get above your raisin, as my mom would say. There's uh, that old country swing song called Cocaine Blues and many different versions out there. Into the courtroom my trial began where I was handled by 12 honest men. Just before the jury started out, I saw that little judge begin to look about. In about five minutes, in walked a man holding the verdict in his right hand. The verdict read in the first degree. I hollered, Lordy, Lordy, have mercy on me. That little judge who decides fates in five minutes or less. I grew up singing that song in my head. On the classic record, 
at Folsom Prison, Johnny Cash recorded several of those old songs and a few newer ones, like the Shel Silverstein song that starts out, well, they're building the gallows outside my cell. I got 25 minutes to go, and the whole town's waiting just to hear me yell. I got 24 minutes to go. The song ends with the narrator falling through the trapdoor of the gallows. And Johnny Cash's Folsom Prison Blues. When I was just a baby, my mama told me, son, always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. The utter murderous nihilism of that character in that song is clear, yet so is the humanity. And that's the oddity of this tradition in American culture, because I grew up playing with guns. But the true culprit in the Cash song is clear. It's not this man who has killed someone, but capitalism itself. I bet there's rich folks eating in a fancy dining car, goes the song. They're probably drinking coffee and smoking big cigars. But I know I had it coming. I know I can't be free. Why can't the narrator be free? Well, it's not because he killed a man in Reno. It's because of those rich folk eating in that fancy dining car. It's capitalism driving the train, not murder. When I was a kid, my father, when my father was a kid, he lived down the road from a very famous hangman who apparently was drunk most of the time. Now, this would have been in the 1920s. This particular hangman was requested far and wide because he never tied the knot wrong. In a hanging, you have two options. Your, your neck can break fairly quickly and you die fairly quickly, or you can choke to death. Either way is fine with the court because the sentence is to hang by the neck until you're dead. The length of time is just a circumstance, therefore. But the condemned in those days got to choose which hangman tied the knot. And this guy, my dad's neighbor, was very popular. So I will let you in on the deep, dark secret of the great hangman of the United States, handed down through the generations. And that is, soak the noose in motor oil. The Great blues artist Blind Lemon Jefferson sang, and I wonder why they electrocute a man at one o'clock in the night. And I wonder why they electrocute a man at the one o'clock hour at night. Because the current is much stronger when the folks has turned out their lights. A little detail we forget. In the American tradition, it's not about being innocent or guilty. Often the songs clearly state Guilt. The songs are about the horror of the punishment, violent, faceless, final, truly inhuman. As Bob Dylan wrote in the song you just heard, any day now, any day now, I shall be released. John. FUS, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the warm hospitality you've given both me and my wife, Mo. Um, today I'd like to share a little bit about my experience as a duty chaplain and share with you some of the many lives of a prisoner. Our Unitarian Universalist values provide us with hope to offer, care to give, 
and most importantly, justice to seek, especially for those who are incarcerated. Furthermore, our UU values provide us with a space and an opportunity to learn from and to serve the incarcerated. However, these UU values and their pursuit must be more than liberal sentiment, more than a parasitic cause through which we attempt to find or solidify an identity. On the contrary, we as Unitarian Universalists, as keepers and stewards of the treasure that is our liberal and intellectual heritage, we need to be in the trenches of human life. In the dirt of those trenches, we need to move away from any preoccupation with our innocence and far from any conception of our purity. In honesty, we need to be in the places where our upper-class white ideas crash into the tragic underside of their all too often unintended consequences. If our liberal faith cannot offer a human being who is full of dignity and worth hope in the time of their incarceration, what good is it? If our faith cannot give a human being care in the deepest hour of their despair, what good is it? If our faith and our movement does not seek justice, but instead unwillingly or unknowingly propagates injustice for those who are incarcerated, I ask you all, what good is it? It is precisely this good that I want to speak to you about today. Through the many lives of a prisoner, we can see a glimpse of the good in our values. We can understand that as Unitarian Universalists, we do have a hope to offer, care to give, and justice to seek, especially in this age of mass incarceration. Therefore, I would like to briefly share the lives of two prisoners with you. Each of the stories is born out of my personal privilege of, wor as, of working as a duty chaplain at a maximum security prison among 1,200 of my parishioners. These two stories represent only a glimpse into that foreign country that is a prison and will open to you only a few of the many lives that one can live as a prisoner. Our first vision of prison life comes from Chad. Chad had soft eyes, was barely out of high school, and his facial hair was still emerging. Chad does and will continue to benefit from all the privileges of being a white heterosexual male. Chad began our session by forcefully exclaiming that he was an atheist as a way of dismissing my presence. Up to this point, Chad had not been given any form of spiritual care. In fact, this was his first time being incarcerated and he was facing a long sentence. Chad struggled with substance abuse issues and a deep fear of abandonment. In fact, if it were not for a diligent mental health nurse who referred him to me, Chad might have never entered my radar. Chad and many others like him had no idea of any form of non-theistic spirituality 
that might assist him in making hope or find meaning. Many people in our correctional center and most others in our small chaplaincy department have little understanding that chaplaincy is multi-faith based. As chaplains, we serve and are trained to serve all people and all faiths. Therefore, understanding the difference between religious and spiritual care becomes vital. Religious care deals primarily with religious rites, materials or rituals that a faith group might distribute or even practice. Spiritual care is concerned with that dimension of human life that we all experience as we try to create or discover meaning and purpose. This depth dimension is present regardless of if we are a part of a religious tradition or if we do not view ourselves as religious at all. Our second vision of prison life comes from Bill. Bill is black, Canadian, and Muslim. When I met Bill, his hands were jittery and his legs were moving rapidly. Bill's face expressed a fearful concern. As I inquired into his presence, Bill interrupted, Chaplain, I've done a lot of bad things. I am Muslim and I am terrified of burning in the flames of hell. After providing some reflective listening, it became clear that Bill was afraid of hell because he loved to commit fraud. Chaplain, I love the game, and I don't know if I can give it up, Bill stated repeatedly throughout our first session. However, upon reflection, I was not convinced that this was the main immediate reason for Bill's fear. During our second session, I asked Bill if there was any other reason he was afraid of hell. Bill looked up at me and for the first time in two conversations was still. Responding in an almost childlike voice, he leaned forward and said to me, Chaplain, I'm homosexual, but I can't tell anyone. They'd kill me. I would later find out that Bill grew up Christian, but was rejected by family and friends upon coming out. After spending many years trying to convince himself that he was not homosexual, Bill thought maybe Islam would cure him. One day, Bill did work up the courage to speak to the Imam and to share his heart, his concern, and his fear. The Imam responded with the values that he had to offer and said to Bill, you should repent of your homosexuality and take your shahada again. Bill was dejected and crushed and desperately attempted this recommitment, but instead remained exactly the way the universe made him. Bill explained to me in complete frustration, I know that I'm homosexual, but I don't know what that means as far as being Muslim. Each of these stories exemplifies the need for our values and our movement. As a Unitarian Universalist, we are few in number. We do not have a stated creed or dogma, and our congregations place the strongest form of political power in your hands. We are not perfect as a people or as a living movement, 
but together we must bend our universe towards justice because if we do not, it will bend toward oblivion. Our values, our institution, and our people must and do have a hope to offer, care to give, and justice to seek, especially in regards to the particular lives of Chad and Bill. Our UU values do make a difference. For Chad, our values offered him a new hope. It meant finally being provided with enough care and information to move past his fear of rejection and help him understand not only what humanism was, but celebrate in his discovery that both he and his father were now identifying as humanists. For Bill, our values meant pursuing justice on his behalf. This meant opening the first verse of the Quran and explaining that God was the most merciful and the most compassionate. I informed Bill that places like Unity Mosques did exist and would be a spiritually welcoming home for both he and his partner. Our values meant being the first religious minister in his entire life to affirm not only his sexuality, but also his faith. Each of these stories reveals to us that no matter where a human being is in their incarceration, that person can benefit from our values and our movement. Our Unitarian Universalist values are not about sticking flags in the grounds of people's hearts, nor are we concerned about converting the whole world to a single center. Rather, being Unitarian Universalist means being about uprooting those harmful flags, while we seek to offer a sustainable hope that passes through the binary of a prison environment. It means being about a care that costs more than abstractions or cheap tolerance. It means being about a justice that demands the humanization and rehabilitation of all who are incarcerated, while blazing a trail of fire against any who would prevent or postpone such justice. As we covenant together to bend our universe towards justice, let us be infused by the flames of our actions to be an association of communities, a movement of people that can support the many lives of a prisoner from the time of their processing until long after their release. Let us together seek a justice that makes our spiritual care worthy and the hope we offer a reality. Let us hold fast that although we have much to learn, there is something good in our Unitarian Universalist values and movement. Together we will show, no matter which of the many lives of a prisoner we come in contact with, our values compel us into providing hope, offering hope, providing care, and seeking justice on behalf of all of our human beings on the inside. So let it be and amen.